0: If you don't know me, my name is Angela. I'm part of the team at Signal, and it's such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. We are in our second week of the series Purpose, and we have been looking at what is God's purpose for all His children. Not just each and every one of us, we have an individual purpose, a plan that God has for us, but as a collective body of Christ, what is God's purpose for us? And last week, Taryn did the introduction, and I have the privilege of sharing the very first one. So I am so excited, but I'm going to pray super quick, so let's just close our eyes. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your good, good work. May you speak to us in such a powerful way this morning, in your precious name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I have many conversations with my kids. I have two little kids, three and five, and many of the conversations are around the question why why can't i eat ice cream for breakfast why can't i ride my motorbike on your bed mommy why can't i eat my snot i don't know what your experiences have been i have boys which is why those are my questions i don't know if girls are different i'll find out soon um but really why they have this wonderful curiosity to discover why things work why we do the things we are why is it like this and Whether you're a Christ follower or not this morning, welcome. We all have a sense in us where we ask questions why? Why is it like this? Why does that happen? Why are we the way we are? Why do people do the things they do? Why? Something inside of us calls us to the fact that there's something bigger in this life, bigger than us, a bigger picture. There's more to life. That we end up at some point asking the question why am I here? What is my purpose? Maybe you've asked that question already and you found your answer and you're going strong and that's great. And this morning, we're going to focus more on that. Looking at what our Creator says is our purpose. Looking from Scripture at who the Creator of the universe, your Maker, what He says our purpose is. I said in another way, when Jesus says to disciples, come follow me. What is exactly is He calling them to? What does He mean when He says, come follow me? When He says to us today, come follow us, what is He calling us to? And the clue is right there in those few words, come follow me. The first and most important answer to the question of what is our purpose is our purpose is that God calls us to Him, to follow Him we draw closer to him and closer to him and today the message is my purpose is christ i can't tell you how exciting it is that that is our very first purpose over the coming weeks we'll look at other things that we are called to do for jesus and with jesus but before we do anything for jesus he calls us to come to him what a beautiful that that is his first desire for us that we would come to him Philippians 3, if you have your Bible, you can turn there super quick, but I'm there already, so I'm going to go for it. Um, Philippians 3 verse 3 says, For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul speaking. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's very humble here. But whatever were gains to me, I know I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul reveals that he understood that Christ is our purpose. Listen to some of those phrases again. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ. All of these echo back to something he said earlier in Philippians 1, verse 21, where he says, the need to live is Christ. Our first purpose is to live for Christ, is to know Christ. Now, that can be some part of the live in where everything is pulling us away in different directions. I don't know if you've ever felt that you wake up in the morning and you're like, where do I even begin? There are so many things pulling us away in different directions, and a lot of them are actually pulling us away from Christ. So how, if our purpose is to draw closer to Christ, but we live in a world that pulls us away from Christ, do we find the strength, the energy, the guidance to follow Him, to draw closer to Him? And our loving God gives us this guidance. And today we're gonna look at four ways we learn from this passage. The first is slightly longer than the others, so don't let it scare you when it takes a while and you're like, oh my, where is she, only on point one? It is just slightly longer, but it's so rich and beautiful. 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis said a car is made to run on petrol. No one's going to argue with that because that's how it was made. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God To make us happy in our own way without bothering about knowing him. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it is not there. There is no such thing. Paul says something similar. He says, for it is we who worship God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for this confidence. And he lists them all. In fact, in his society, the Jewish society, where he grew up, there were some things that they really valued, that people really admired. If these were the things you could like get on your list, it was like you were amazing. They trusted these things. They even believed these things impressed God. This is what they were. They trusted in an initiation right. In Paul's case, circumcision. Some people nowadays will think, I'm, "I was baptized as a child. I was brought up as a, in a Christian home, so I'm fine. That's it. You know, I've got that right. I did the things. I'm good." The second thing they trusted in was the country they grew up in. In Paul's case, Israel. But even here around the world, there's a hierarchy of countries. There's the GDP that they're rated on. And the higher you are, the better the country you're living. And we can feel better about ourselves. They trusted in a particular group that they aspired to be a part of. He was in Benjamin's tribe. I can't tell you what that means, if you don't know. You can google it later. Um, I mean, I could tell you, but it would take more time. Probably not longer than what it would have. I should stop. Um, But for us nowadays, there are sporting tribes, and intellectual tribes, and arty tribes, and, you know, groups of people that we so desperately want to be a part of because we admire them and we're inspired to be in these tribes. They trusted in their language, which was Hebrew. Us, we also tend to assume that sometimes our language can be better than someone else's, or our accent better than someone else's. Except for the French, it's beautiful. No one I mean, that's just beautiful. But they trusted in their denomination. They trusted in Paul's case that he was a Pharisee, so that was like a notch on his belt. If you've grown up in the Christendom, you know, in in a Christian home, there's a lot of different denominations, and sometimes we can think, oh, ours is better, you know, I'm Methodist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm charismatic, I'm Catholic. You know, we can put status on that. They trusted in their natural abilities and strengths. Even before Paul knew Jesus, he had this zeal, he had this passion, this gumption. And some of us trust in that extroversion or confidence or intelligence. They trusted in their moral decency. Paul was squeaky, squeaky clean. He calls himself faultless, you know, which I mean, had to be pretty decent if he's going on telling people I'm faultless and according to the law of Moses as well. But how many of us trust in the high road we choose to take? We've been taught to make good decisions, ethical decisions. Paul's society elevated and trusted these things. His culture totally rubbed off on him. He lived for them. And as talented, as privileged he was, he managed to get all of them. I mean, all of them. He was the top of the land, the cream of the crop, first in class. And he once thought they were gains. He himself says it. They gave him a huge advantage in life. He felt fantastic about them. He didn't look at these things and go, oh, look at me, I'm a Pharisee. He was like, hey guys, I'm a Pharisee, I'm on fire. It was good for him to have these things. And I wonder if Paul grew up in our culture right now, what would he say were those things? What would have been the criteria to being the it person? Maybe he would have mentioned romantic love. I have had the love of a lifetime. Or money. By age 35, I sold my startup for Amazon for $5 billion. This is not me, I am just quoting possible. I did not have $5 billion. (laughs) Or security. I didn't live flush, but I had investments that sorted me out for life. I mean, what a thought, not to have to worry. Or comfort. My house and holidays were documented on top billing. Success. I was, in first, I was first in class, first on the field, first in my career. Or family, I was surrounded by my parents and siblings and a spouse and children who loved me and worshiped me. Or looks, my body was ripped. Men wanted to be me and women wanted to be with me. <laughs> That's a weird sentence to quote. <laughs> so Especially pregnant for the for child. pregnant, tell we go. Very awkward, guys, stay with me. Or power. people respected and admired and obeyed me none of these things were bad in themselves we grew up in a society that taught us these were the best of things in life they're gains but something happened that changed Paul's view forever that when he looked at these things he no longer saw gains he saw well in verse 7 he says but whatever were gains to me I now consider loss for the sake of Christ Loss for the sake of Christ. He realized that so much of what society values and what he wants values really doesn't matter. They were not actually gains at all. And now why would you say something like that? Why would he say something like that? I think for a few reasons. One, none of these could truly fulfill him. I'm um, thinking of, for instance, like romantic love. Christopher West in his book, um, Fill These Hearts, describes this encounter him and his wife have. They go out for dinner and they're looking at each other and they realize all of a sudden they're in a happier place than they were a, a few years back. And they look and the wife says to him, why do, you, why do you think we're happier? And the husband says, because I've realized you can't satisfy me. I mean, if the husband had to say that, do would be like, ha- excuse you? <laughs> You know, or if your wife said that to you, it's like, thanks. But she turned to him and said, you know, I've had the same realization. You can't satisfy me. And for anybody, they say, overhearing them in the restaurant would have thought they were about to get divorced. But to them, it was this great cause for joy and celebration because they'd never felt freer in their love. Only to the degree that they said that we stop expecting others to be God for us are we free to love others as they really are, once and all? without demanding perfection of them, whether a spouse, a friend, a son, a daughter, or any other relationship. So we find our deepest fulfillment in knowing our Creator. As wonderful as serving God may be, knowing Him is so much more important. O.S. Skinny in his book writes, The Call writes, um, the main competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for Jesus. We are to be satisfied in God before we do something for Him. Do we put our emphasis on service or usefulness or in being productive in working for God at His expense? Do we strive to prove our own significance, to make a difference in the world, to carve out our names in marble on the monuments of time? But are we not called primarily to do something or go somewhere? Oh, we are not primarily called to go somewhere or do something. We are called to someone. And that really sticks home. We are called to someone. That's the first reason. None of these things can fulfill you. And secondly, none of these things can forgive you. If you live a life for money or ministry, and yet you blow it badly, and that person leaves you or you lose your ministry, you can never forgive yourself. If you live for success or approval or money, and yet you make a few bad calls and lose it all, you regret it. You can't forgive yourself. These things are brutal when you lose them they cripple you with regret. grant. 39 of these things are forever. They come and they go. Most of them, they have to be attained, and if you do attain them, you have to then continually maintain them. Think of money. A few years back, 200 billion Rand was lost in the JSE in one day. People woke up that morning thinking they had, their money was in safe hands, and by the time they went to bed, it was gone. Just gone vanished into pain. Think. think of approval. There's always like a group of people that you look up to, that you want to aspire to. People in your life that you're like, hey, they seem to have a going. I really like what they've got. And you try to attain to, to what they're doing in their life. But approval comes and goes. Some of us get into that group, some of us don't. And when we do, there's a lot of hard work that goes into maintaining it. We're staying there. You see, what Paul realized is that the world and society had been duped. That these things, as good as they are, can never be ultimate. They're good things, family, work, success, it's good, but they're not the ultimate. They cannot be God to us. They're not forever, they cannot fulfill us, and they cannot forgive us. So where does that leave us? In fact, i suggest that you take a pen, maybe, when you get home and write down all the things, like a kind of a therapy, self-therapy moment for you. Take five minutes, take five hours, whatever you feel. And just write down all the things and people and goals and activities that you've got in your life and look them square in the eye and say, You are not forever. You cannot fulfill me. You can't forgive me. You're good, but you're not ultimate. You can't be my God. But Paul doesn't stop there, he continues. I mean, we would think that's, that's a good dusting. You're not my God. But he goes on in verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He lets go of his grip to these things so that he could take hold of Christ. Because if you see the, have this picture, you're holding on to all these things. How do you hold on to Christ if you're holding on to these so tightly, God, I want to know you, I want to follow you, but I just, you know, I need my business, so I'm going to have to make some compromises there. God, I love you, but I just, I'm so in love with this person, I can't let them go, even though you're calling me to do something different. He considers it loss. Once he's broken, his heart's fixation on these things, he takes his ache for forever, for fulfillment, for forgiveness. And he takes it to the one who alone is forever. To the one alone who can forgive us and can deeply fulfill us, and that's Christ. The first way we draw closer to God is realizing that Christ alone can fulfill, forgive, and is forever. The second way, and I told you the first one was longer, so don't panic that this is the second point. The second one is that we can let the painful experiences of life drive us to him. He says in verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I have lost many things, all things in fact. And I know many people who, myself included, have given up things for God. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how once he started to follow Jesus, things were taken from him. They were given up. They were ripped from him. And it was painful. There were things that were precious to him. And something happened and they were taken away. And it was painful. And the question is, does that that happen when we follow Jesus? Yes. It does. It's very common. But in the gospel, Jesus speaks of homes and mothers and brothers and sisters. Even our own lives are sometimes lost. And Paul experienced this. His friends abandoned him. I think for many of us, that would be already the like, no, 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 I'm done. I don't want to lose my friends. His friends abandoned him. His reputation was ripped out from under his feet. He was once highly regarded, and after that, no more. Wealth and comforts were torn from him, And even liberty was denied him as he spent years in prison. He lost it all. And we will experience some kind of loss. So what do we do when this happens? Paul shows us. He says to us, consider these things worthless. He uses the word garbage, which in the Greek literally means "dung." But they're not worthless. These things are not worthless. He's using a hyperbole to exaggerate the point to compare how worthless they are in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. They are not worthless bad things on their own, but in comparison to knowing Christ, to following Christ, to being in Christ, they are worthless. They are garbage. Paul suffered a lot and I hope that you and I don't have to suffer nearly as much as he did, but there will be some loss. There will be some suffering. And each time, God will use it to draw us closer to Him. Our job is to let Him. I don't know if you can relate to this point. Some of us may not have experienced much loss in our lives. But if you have, or if you do, please remember this. Let painful experiences draw you closer to Him. I think of Anna in Luke 2. She was a prophet who never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to Mary and Joseph and the child at that very moment, she gives thanks to God, that's what Luke 2 says and Anna was a woman who was married for 7 years and then her husband died and she spent the rest of her life in, in God's temple she could have run and she could have hidden in a cave but instead she chose to seek Christ to seek God, to seek, to be closer to him and her reward was that she saw Jesus, she saw the Messiah and it was such a joyful reward for her, she was ecstatic and she could do nothing but praise because she had met God's son There's a book by a Dutch lady, Corrie Ten Boom, called My Hiding Place, who grew up in the home of Christian parents who helped protect Jews from the Nazis. Tragically, someone informed the Nazis and her whole family was imprisoned. She and her sister landed up in one of the worst concentration camps where they pastored fellow prisoners. Days after her sister died, she tells of how she was miraculously released. Tragically, she had lost everyone and everything dear to her during World War II. Stripped of everything, she turned to Jesus, and he worked so powerfully in her life. She became an evangelist who traveled the world to make Jesus known to people. Her main message was how sometimes God uses suffering to bring us closer to him. Here's the line that really stands out. She said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. The third way is to cast your deadly doing down. That sounds weird. Centuries ago, a famous songwriter wrote this song. I'm not going to sing it because nobody wants that. No, no. i really, I won't even. <laughs> cast your deadly do- doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously compete. What does it mean, deadly doing? Deadly doing is doing good stuff because we think it gives us a right standing with God. It's the same thing people um, Paul speaks of here in verse 9 where he says that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There are two ways that Paul calls here to have a righteousness of my own. And either way is basically trying to be your own saviour um, and trying to get your own righteousness, trying to save yourself, trying to get your own way back to God. There's an irreligious way and a religious way to do this. The irreligious way is to basically say, well, who knows if there's a God? Who knows? If there is a God, who knows if the Bible is true? We can't know. So I'm going to live my life as best I can and I'm going to work hard for the best life I can. I'm going to be a hardworking, principled person and though I doubt there's a God. If there is a God, I'm sure he would take me into his heaven because I've worked so hard to be a good person. That's the original, well, original, no, 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 a religious way of achieving his own righteousness. But there's a religious way to do it too. It's to say, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to be better than other people. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to pray, read my Bible. I'm going to do good. And then God will accept me, be pleased with me, bless me, owe me, But you see, this is just another way to be your own saviour. The irreligious way and the religious way are just as futile. Both form a deadly doing. Since childhood, Paul had taken the religious way. He tried to achieve every outstanding, right way of standing with God through diligently abiding by the rules as he could. And if he messed up, he earnestly repented. But then he made the biggest discovery of his life. He needed not only to repent of his sins but also of his righteousness, his own righteousness. He needed to cast down his deadly doing at Jesus' feet. He needed to repent of his attempt to try to secure right standing by God and trying to make God accept him and bless him and owe him on the basis of his good needs. Paul came to a place of saying, God, the only way I can stand before you accepted with a right standing is to stand in Jesus alone, glorious and complete. You see, the gospel says that righteousness, guys, this is, this is like the, beauty, the beautiful part, the beautiful goal. Righteousness, right standing with God, is not achieved. You cannot earn it. You cannot earn a right standing with God. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. It is a gift received. Is a gift God reaches out to you and says, My child, I love you. I've made a way for you to be right with me. I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for all your sins. You just have to accept him and come follow me. There's nothing else you need to do to be standing right before me. What a loving God we serve. We cannot attain our own righteousness. We cannot save ourselves. And there's nothing we can offer God except ourselves. Paul realized that it is by grace alone we can stand in confidence before God, not in our own acts. Now, I'm not saying that living a good life and following God and going to church is wrong, but when we have the tendency to think that that's what puts us in right standing with God, we're losing our focus. You see, so many of us start our journey with God understanding and accepting His grace. We accept that He is gracious and forgiving us. But then something happens and we turn our focus to trying to keep that grace. We start to go, well, what do we need to do to keep this grace, to keep in right standing with God? And we start to get our confidence in approaching God from being a decent and obedient life in His way. Now, that's not wrong, but it's not what makes us right with God. God calls us to live out our faith in doing many of those things, but it's not what makes us right with God. If you want to come right, if you want to come to Christ, then you've got to repent of your righteousness, your attempts to be your own Savior. You've got to trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you want to grow closer to Christ, then every day rejoice in the fact that you stand in Him, in Him alone, glorious and complete, all by grace. The fourth way and the final way, as I close, is deciding to get closer to god the first three is realizing christ alone can fulfill forgive and is forever the second way letting the painful experiences draw you closer the third putting down the deadly doing acts and fourthly deciding to get closer to jesus notice paul isn't anyone to calling anyone to christianity he's calling them to christ for everyone is attracted by christ but sometimes we get bored or repelled by christianity and we focus on that instead of who Jesus is. The key is to get closer to Christ. Someone once said, you will never be closer to Jesus than you want to be. You will never be closer to Jesus than you want to be. Paul says something similar in verse 10. I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. He wanted nothing more than to be known so closely with Christ daily contact, to walk with him, to experience the Holy Spirit's resurrection power. When going through hard times, experience Jesus' comforting comforting closeness. He wants to be found in him. Basically, when anyone says, where is Paul? Oh, he's with Jesus. Do you want to grow closer to God this year? Or at all? If you're sitting here and you're not a believer, and you've got questions and you're unsure, I want to I share one quote with you quick. It's from C.S. Lewis, it's very short. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If you're standing here with questions and you don't know where you stand, you owe it to yourself to at least find out because it's of infinite importance. And the beautiful, wonderful news is that he says if you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him, he's not going to hide from you. If you are a believer and you're committed or on shaky ground, determine that you will do whatever it takes to draw closer to God. Ask God to put a hunger in you that can be satisfied by nothing else. Here are some really awesome ways, quick. Prioritize weekly gatherings. Go in a church or life group to worship him. Sit under his word. Sing songs. Worship Him here at church, in your car, everywhere. Pray throughout the day or set aside times to pray. Read and reflect on scripture each day. Have a time of devotion with you and God. Find people who also follow Jesus and spiritualize each other on in accountability, challenge, encouragement. Small groups, nightclubs are great for that. If you're not in a group, join one. Grab moments of silence and solitude, shutting out all the distractions and daily ask God to fill you up with His Holy Spirit. God sends us His Spirit to help us. He doesn't go, here you are, figure it out. He gives us His Word. He gives us His Spirit. And He gives us each other. God wants us to know Him. And that's the beautiful thing. It's a two-way relationship. It's It's not a case of you wanting to know Him and He's hiding. As I finish, there's one little example. Have you ever played hide and seek with a child? Especially a little child. You know, you come into the room and they're hiding behind the pillow or behind the curtain and you can so clearly see them because they're moving their feet and the curtains are moving and they go, shh. My boy's always like, shh. No, mommy's coming. No, shh, shh, shh. And you know exactly where they are because they want to be found by you. God wants to be found by you. He reveals himself to us in so many ways. Of course, he will call us to do other things. But it's only as we walk close to the caller that we can discover our other callings. Your purpose is Christ, to know him and to draw closer to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness and your love, your unconditional love, your grace that you offer us and your mercy, Lord, salvation by just believing. We thank you that our purpose is first to know you to be your child, to follow you, Father. And this morning we pray that for everyone sitting here, Father, you would just put a burning desire in us to know you, Father. A desire to, to hunger after a deeper relationship with you. Father, if there is anyone sitting here this morning that is unsure of whether or not you are real or unsure of how to follow you or what to go about, Lord, I pray that you would touch them right now where they're sitting. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch them right now where they're sitting. That you would give them such a calling on their heart, Father. You would draw them to you by your Spirit, Lord. (coughs) You love them, Father, and they are yours. And I pray that this morning you would draw them to you. Let them know your love for them. Let them know your purpose for them, Father. And, Father, if there's someone sitting here who feels very far away from you, who knows you, who maybe as a young child accepted you, but has kind of gone on a different journey, Father, I pray that you would, you would show them the wel- welcoming, open arms you have for them, Father. That you stand there with open arms. Nothing would make you happier for them to just run back to you, Father. I pray that you would let their hearts be filled with love, Father. Let them come to you. Let them turn to you. Experience your love and your comfort, Father. Nothing can take away your love for us. Nothing on heaven or hell on earth. Nothing can stop you, nor angels or demons, from you loving us, Father. And I pray that if there's anyone sitting here feeling as though they can't come to you because they've let you down. Or they haven't fully given everything to you, Father, I pray you would break that hold. Of Satan in Jesus' name, I pray you would break those chains and you would allow them the freedom to come running to you. Father, Holy Spirit, I pray in your, in your name, Lord, that you would just rain down on this place with love a gentle rain that would wash away any hurts or pains or anything hindering anybody from turning to you. Drawing closer to you. Father, you know each of our hearts. You know each of our situations. And Father, we pray that your spirit would reign over us. Wash it away. And replace it with your love. Replace it with comfort and joy that we are yours first. You have called us to you. Father, I pray that you go with us this week and you continue to work in our hearts and our lives. Strengthen us. In your spirit, guide us. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. In your precious name. Amen.